You know, last week we began a brand new series called The Prophet. And The Prophet, there's many prophets that you find throughout the Old Testament. But the prophet that we're looking at right now is the prophet Elijah. And here's why. Because the Bible lets us know there was many distinguishing characteristics about, about Elijah. But probably the one that you can always think of the most, he was known for his powerful prayers. In fact, James chapter 5 says this about Elijah. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then when he prayed again, the sky went, the sky, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crop. Can you imagine being so effective in your prayer life, having so much power in your prayer life that you could actually pray, and for three and a half years the rain stopped until you prayed again? Now, what's interesting about that is not so much about the rain coming or not coming. The Bible says this, that he was human just like you and I. And the Bible says that that prayer of a righteous man has much power behind that. And so what we want to discover over the next few weeks as we study Elijah, how do you and I, normal humans just like Elijah, how do we have prayers like that? And last week we began looking at a story. And if you weren't there, let me just kind of catch up to the story of Elijah. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 17. But God had given Elijah a message to go to King Ahab and let him know that the rains were going to stop. Now, let's just pause there for a second and understand Elijah's whole idea for the rains to stop and his prayer that it would stop was not some great idea that he had. Elijah knew the heart and mind of God so much that he could voice the very things that God wanted to happen in life. And so he went into King Ahab and said, King Ahab, you've not been a good king. That you were supposed to be a God-centered king. And as a God-centered king, you would leave your people to be God-centered people. But unfortunately, King Ahab had let his wife Jezebel be a great influence in the country and in his own life and had let the people turn away from Yahweh God and turn to their own idols, Baals and different idols like that. And so the whole country was just kind of everybody doing their own thing. And so that's the reason Elijah walked into King Ahab, as we read about in the first part of chapter 17 of 1 Kings, and said, Elijah, or said, Ahab, God said it will not rain here anymore until things change around here. And at that point... After he delivered that edict, the Bible says that Elijah turned around and left. He left because he'd already said what he needed to say, but he also left because he knew if he stuck around very long, the king would not like what he had to say and might have his head on a platter for that. And so we looked last week when he left, Elijah went to a place called the Brook of Kareth and he stayed there. Now the Bible doesn't tell us how long, but theologians look at it and do some deciphering and they think he was by the Brook Kareth for 18 months. Now, can you imagine if you're Elijah for 18 months, you're following what God wants in your life and you deliver this edict to the king and then you go by the brook and the Bible tells us this, that every day for every meal, a raven would bring Elijah food. Might bring him bread, might bring him some meat. Now, let me clarify this. The bread that the bird would bring would be probably something he found in somebody's trash. The meat that the bird brought was probably some dead carcass on the side of the road somewhere. So it wasn't like he was delivering this amazing, luxurious meal. But the Bible does let us know in 1 Kings chapter 17 that God provided for every one of Elijah's physical needs as he stayed there by the book, Brook Kareth. And so every morning he woke up and there's breakfast. At noontime, there's lunch. At dinnertime, there's dinner there. God always took care of it. And there was the water running in the brook. And that's where he would get his refreshment. That's where he would get his drink as well. Now again, that sounds glorious. That sounds like such a life of faith. 
But I imagine that not a day went by that Elijah didn't wake up going, God, is today the day? And nothing happened. The next day, God, is today the day? And nothing happened. And he wasn't praying that his day the day that it rains because that wasn't the goal of all this. The goal of why God stopped the rains up in heaven was so to get the people's attention, to get the king's attention, that they would turn their hearts back to God. So every single day, Elijah waited and he prayed, is today the day that people's lives, their hearts turn back to you? You ever had to wait on like, like that on God? Waiting can be one of the most difficult things, but that was Elijah's job day after day after day after day that he waited. And then finally, God gave him a message. In chapter 17, verse 7, here's what it says. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. So he waited day after day for God to change the hearts and the people turn their hearts back to God. But the only message that he finally got from God was, and the brook dried up. Look what it says next in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in a village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. When you first read that, you're thinking, oh, Elijah's going, a home-cooked meal. Okay, this is going to be wonderful. 18 months I've sat by this brook. I've eaten dirty food from a bird. I've drank the water out of the stream. I'm going into somebody's home, and she is going to cook me the best home-cooked meal. Well, here's the problem with that thinking. Elijah probably knew more about widows at that time than you and I do. See, back in those days when there was a widow, there was no government assistance. They had no way of going to making money of their own. And so most widows were much like beggars. The only thing they had to feed themselves or their family, but family was by something else someone else gave them. And keep in mind this too. Elijah knew it had been 18 months since it had rained. Though he had not visited any of the towns to see what was going on, it didn't take much speculation. It didn't take much insight to realize there's probably not a lot of food going on back in the towns. Because if there's no rain, there's no crops growing. If there's no crops growing, how do you feed people? If there's no rain, there's no water to feed the animals, and many of the animals are dying. So he had a good suspicion that even back in Zarephath, it wasn't like all the restaurants were open. All the homes were, had these nice cooked meals on the table. Yet God told him, I want you to go to Zarephath, and there's a widow woman there, and she is going to feed you. So Elijah obeyed God. He went back in verse 10. So he went to Zarephath, and as he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a cup of water? Again, put yourself in this situation. He walks up. It's the city gate. The city gate is where many of the men would sit around and talk. The only women that you would find there would be women who were begging for food or widows trying to get something to eat. And so it was pretty easy for Elijah to look going, oh, she must be a widow because if she wasn't a widow, she wouldn't be there in the first place. And so the Bible says he looks at her and he says, woman, can you get me a drink? Now, it doesn't take much imagination to wonder how that one went over, Right. Can you imagine walking up to some stranger going, hey, woman, can you give me something to drink? And the Bible says this. If you go on and read about it later today, let me just story tell it to you, that she looked at him. It doesn't tell us everything she said or thought. It's probably a good thing. But she looked at him and she said, how in the world can you ask me for a drink of water? And then she kind of goes off. 
She goes, you man of your God. So she's distinguishing herself because Zarephath, Zarephath was a town, a pagan town. They didn't worship the same God, the Yahweh God that Elijah did. He goes, she goes, here's what's going on, Mr. You of your God. She said, I am a widow. She goes, I actually have nothing to eat for me and my son. I have just a little bit, a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And you're asking me to get you something to drink? He goes, oh, by the way, can you get me something to eat also? And she says, something to eat? She says, I'm about to go home right now, and I'm taking what little bit of oil and what little bit of flour I have left over. I'm making one last cake for me and my son, and then we're going off to die. She was in a hopeless situation. The drought had done its work on her. There was nobody to beg from. There was nothing in her kitchen to eat. And she was literally making the last meal she had for her son and her. And then she said, we have nothing else to do but to die. And the Bible says Elijah looked at her and said, you know, don't worry. Because my God will take care of you. If you will trust me, go home, and I want you to make that last cake for you and your son. But before you make your last little bread cake... I want you to make one for me. So you can imagine what she's going through her mind. Make one. For, I only have enough for us. I can't divide this by three. It's barely dividing us in half and all this. And so all this stuff is going through her mind. And he goes, but I need you to trust me and my God. And if you trust us and if you feed me, you will be taken care of. And the story goes on to say this, that Elijah went home with her. She made that cake. She made the cake for her son. She made it for herself. She made it for Elijah. She even said, Elijah, you can stay in this extra room in my house. The next morning she woke up. There was enough flour in the canister. There was enough oil in the jar to make another cake for her, her son, and Elijah. And the Bible says day after day after day, that's exactly what took place. She would use it all up to make these cakes and think, where are we going to get the food the next day? She'd wake up the next day, and there was just enough flour, just enough oil, just enough whatever she needed to make one more cake for another day. And this went on day after day after day. Much like the time that Elijah spent at the Brook Corinth, we're not exactly sure how long she was at the widow's house. Again, theologians estimate that it's probably a year, year and a half that she spent there. And it was more waiting and waiting. Because Elijah's there, and while he gets a fresh cooked meal, his heart is still praying every day, God, when are you going to turn the hearts of the people to you? Or better prayer, God, when are the hearts of the people going to choose to turn to you? And he waited. Yeah, while all this was going on, and the widow woman made the cake every single day, we get this sense as you read the scripture there in the 17th chapter that her faith in Yahweh God began to increase because she had put her trust in Baal. Baal was the God of rain, and there was no rain coming, so you kind of got to give up on this God. Yet Elijah's God, God of Yahweh, God of, that we know about, was the one delivering the food every single day. And so you get this sense that her faith began to increase. And she began to lean a little bit more towards Yahweh, God. She began to have a little bit more hope and trust that things will get better because she was trusting in Elijah's God. And so every single day, things got better and better. Her faith increased more and more until, look with me in verse 17. The Bible says this, and sometime later, this woman's son became sick. He, got, he grew worse and worse, and finally he died. 
And then she said to Elijah, oh, man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? So all of a sudden she had this tragedy in her life. She's leaning on God. She's trusting God. She's having faith in God. And she wakes up one day and her son's sick and he gets sicker and sicker. And all of a sudden he dies. And the Bible says this, that she turned on Elijah she said, what have you done? You've come into my house and you've brought my sins. You're showing out all my sins to your God. And my punishment is my son dies. Really, she wasn't even, I don't think, accusing Elijah as much as she was crying out and mad at his God that this happened to her. And the Bible says this, that Elijah looked at her and he didn't say a word. He didn't try to respond. He didn't try to excuse. He didn't try to explain it all away. He said, the Bible says he just reached down and he picked up the dead child. And without saying a word, he went upstairs to his room. And the Bible says he laid the child on his bed. And then Elijah speaks. And this time he doesn't speak to the child because the child's dead. There's no one else in the room to talk to. So he talks to God. Remember, Elijah's a man of prayer. And the Bible says this. He's going, God what in the world are you doing? This woman has trusted you. This woman has had faith in you and her son has died. As you go back and read the actual scripture, you can sense the emotion. You can sense the hurt. You can sense everything going on inside of him going, God, why? And then the Bible says this, he laid out over the child and he said, oh God, would you bring this child back to life? Three times, the Bible says, he laid himself over the child. And three times he prayed, oh, God, would you bring this child back to life? And all of a sudden, there's a breath. And he stands back. And I'm sure the child's eyes opened up. And Elijah's looking at him. And the Bible doesn't go into this detail, but I'm sure it had to happen this way. The child sits up in his bed. The dead child is now alive. And he sits up in his bed and he reaches out. And I've got to believe there's got him in the biggest hug they've ever seen in that room. Up until that point. Because Elijah takes the child back downstairs. And he says, Mom, here's your child. I no longer have to carry him. He walked out here with me because God healed your son. God made your dead son alive. And it was at that moment that the mother's faith all of a sudden re-engaged and she once again started believing in the God, Yahweh God, Elijah's God. And that's an amazing story. But there's one common denominator in all of this story, both in this story, even if you go back to by the brook of Corinth, there's one constant thing that's going on. You know what that one thing is? Waiting. And waiting. And waiting. And waiting. See, last week we began our study of Elijah and this idea of prayer. And what we said last week, it's all about the request, isn't it? Prayer starts with the request. And a, repress, a request that is God's request is the one that he will answer most the, all the time because it's his heart that you're praying. And so the second phase of praying is oftentimes waiting. But the problem we have with waiting, we take it out of the prayer formula and we think it's something completely different. But here's what I'm learning and realizing and I want us to see in the story of Elijah that the idea and the process of waiting is as much a part of the prayer as the request was when it all started. Because it's in the waiting that God is doing things in the person praying, in the environment around the prayer, that God is at work. But without the waiting, we never give God the opportunity to do those things. 
So waiting is not disengaged from prayer. Waiting is part of the prayer. So here's what I like to do. The idea of that waiting, I think there's five observations that we can see from the story that we can apply to mind in your life when it comes to the wait. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The wait is about deepening your faith more than enduring the situation. The wait is about deepening your faith more than enduring the situation. If you've never read the story of Elijah, let me give you a little hint about what's going to happen next week. If you think a bird feeding a man is a little crazy, if you think a man, a prophet praying for a dead boy to to raise and be alive again is kind of crazy, wait till you get to next week. There's a spiritual warfare taking place next week and read our story between Elijah and Yahweh and all the priests and the prophets from the other religion and all their gods are calling on. And there's fire coming down, there's water being put on bulls, and there's just, it's just, it's a good story. If you're going, I don't think I believe everything in the Bible, I don't know if I want to come, but if, if I'll believe in that, even if you don't believe in it, just come listen to it. It's a good story just to listen to. But, but here's why I give you a hint of what's going to take place. It is so big, so out of the ordinary, so miraculous, if Elijah's faith hadn't grown by trusting in a bird to bring him food, he had never been ready for what's to take place at Mount Carmel next week. If Elijah's faith hadn't grown, he laid himself on top of that child, and to watch a dead boy take a breath again, he would never be ready for everything else that God wanted to do through him. And so this whole waiting that Elijah's doing, waiting for people's hearts to turn to God so God can really reveal himself, what God is doing is deepening his faith so God can do more through and to and with Elijah. So let me give you another little hint. Many in this room are probably in a waiting situation right now. And you're going, oh, if I can just get through this situation, if I can make it through tomorrow, if I can get through next year, and you're just trying to endure it. But here's what I want to encourage you and challenge you with. Maybe what God's trying to do is not to build your endurance, but to deepen your faith. That God has given you the situation you're in because he's trying to grow your dependency on him in such a way because he's got something else down the road that you can't even see right now. And God's going, I would love to tell you, but if I told you, you'd probably pass out right now and couldn't get to it. He said, but what I'm doing is giving you step-by-step-by-step faith growth moments so when you get to this other situation down the road, you're ready to trust me even more because you've deepened your faith. So first point about waiting. The wait is about deepening your faith more than enduring the situation. Here's number two. The, The wait is the place you are refined for the future. The wait is the place that you're refined for the future. Let me give you a little historical, biblical knowledge, a little background right here. That the name of that town, Zarephath, if you translate it to the original Hebrew, it has the connotation, it has the meaning furnace. So really when God said, hey, Elijah, I need you to go to Zarephath, he was really saying, hey, Elijah, I need you to go to the furnace. I need you to go where it's going to kind of heat up a little bit. I I need you to go where it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But it's in the furnace that Elijah's faith was molded into the shape that God needed it to be. There's so many times that we complain about the heat. But without the heat, there's no molding and shaping. If I brought you some iron in here right now and said, hey, let's see if we can shape this and mold it in whatever form we want to. And you took it, you couldn't bend that iron. You couldn't shape it. It is that iron. But you put that same iron in a furnace and let the heat take it. We could mold that iron in any shape we want it to be. 
And so God had to send Elijah to Zarephath in another season of waiting because he was still getting to the point where God could mold and shape his trust in him. Could it be that the season of waiting that you find yourself in right now, God has literally placed you in the furnace not to break you, not to harm you, not to upset you, but he has placed you and I in the furnace so we are more moldable to be shaped in who he needs us to be. So the weight is a place you're refined for the future. Let me give you the third thing about the weight. And I just have to take a pause here and say, you might have liked your pastor on the first two. Going, that's good preaching, pastor, good preaching, pastor. You won't like your pastor on number three here. Okay, I promise you that. And here's number three. The weight is not just about you. Can I say it again? The weight is not just about you. I think back to when I was in college at Texas Tech University. My goal when I graduated college was to be married. Like I dreamed I'm going to finish, get my degree. The summer after I graduate, I'm going to get married. We're going to live happily ever after. I'll serve Jesus. I had it all worked out. The problem is during college, I never had a date. Like I went on this dry spell for a while. And so my goal of getting married when I got out of college just didn't quite work out. So in 1988, I was supposed to be married. I didn't get married. In 1989, I didn't get married. In 1990, I didn't get married. In 1991, I didn't get married. And I'm looking around and all my friends are getting married. All, the, all my classmates, it's that season of life, they're all getting married. And I'm looking going, God, look at me. I'm living for you. I'm a pastor. I'm trying to live my life for you. I'm God-centered. I know they're not God-centered. I know they're not living for you and they're getting a wife. What's up, God? What about me? And I've taken God's design and will for my life and I made it all about me and not about him. Looking back, do you know what he was doing? There was a girl four years younger than me that didn't know Jesus yet. And he was taking her life and molding it and shaping it and putting things in her life that she would come to know Jesus. And her life would become so much just in love with Jesus that she'd be looking for the right kind of Christian man to marry her. She didn't know at that time, but God was actually shaping her to be an amazing pastor's wife. She tells me now, I didn't want a pastor's wife. I didn't want to be a pastor's wife. I just want to marry a Christian. Now, you know, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> but here's what I'm getting at. If I would have got married on my timetable and I didn't go through the furnace and the fire and the, the pain of waiting, I would not have waited long enough to marry my wife and celebrate 31 years of marriage, a beautiful marriage, God-centered marriage that we get to bless other people with our ministry. And so I had to realize the wait is not about me. It was also about her. I also have to realize it was about my kids. I also have to realize it's about South Sub Church because I believe God called not just me but her here to all love each other together. And so, so many times, here's what we do when it comes to God's plan for our life. We put a, get a big old piece of paper going, okay, God, I am the center of this paper. There it is right there, God. And you're draw a big circle around that dot going, okay, God, here's me and here's you. And I need all this stuff to evolve and make my life good. God goes, no, 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 no. Here's how it works. He draws the big circle and goes, here's my life. Here's what I'm doing in the world. Here's the things I'm doing that you can't even see. And you're just lucky enough that I get to put you in what I'm doing. And so it's about the circle, not the dot. But yet when it comes to waiting, we're like, no, no, the dot, the dot, the dot. God's going, no, 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 no. It's the circle because there's lots of things going on. In fact, let me read a verse to you. 
when I story told it to you, this is verse 24 of chapter 17. After that he was fed, and, and after they were fed, and she saw the multiplying of the flour and the oil, and after all this took place, then the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God, and the Lord truly speaks through you. And Elijah could have said, God, what's taking so long? Like, this is day 91 that I've been here at this widow's house. Can't we do something? And God's going, no, no, it's not about you, Elijah. It's also about her, and she's seeing me through you. So third point about waiting, the wait is not just about you. Here's number four. The wait develops our faith, but it does not alleviate doubt, emotions, and questions. It's kind of a long one. Let me say that again. The way develops our faith, but it does not alleviate doubt, emotions, and questions. Somehow we have this idea that walking on faith means I have to be a robot for God. Okay, God, you're doing this, and I can't have any doubts, and I can't have any emotions, and yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And here's the deal. God made us holistically. God gave us emotions. God even allows doubts. He allows questions. But somehow we think on the faith journey that I have to take all that aside because if I'm really having faith in Jesus, I can't feel these things. And I think that's completely wrong. We can have all the faith in the world but still have doubts. We can have all the faith in the world and still have questions. And definitely with all the faith as we're following Jesus, we're still allowed emotions. I've got to believe that when Elijah went up there in his room by himself, his prayer was not this, oh, dear God, good, gracious God, you've given us this dead boy. And thank you that you gave us nine years, this dead, this dead boy, but bless your name, Jesus. And so we just pray, God. I don't think his prayer went that way. I think he probably went up in the stairs going, oh, God, what are you doing? Oh, God, this makes me sad. I learned to love this boy, and my heart is broken. Oh, God, I am trying to follow you, but you're making it difficult. And I don't think if he prayed prayers like that, God ever looked down and went, Oh, no, 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 Elijah, you need to get back over there and be the good little Christian I want you to. I think God's going, Elijah, I love you with all those emotions. Elijah, I love you with all your questions. Elijah, I love you with all your doubts. God doesn't have to answer our questions, but he'll welcome our questions. God may not always fill all of our doubts with all the answers, but he's okay with all of our doubts. And God is okay for us to have emotions around him because, again, he created us in these emotions. And so the faith journey of waiting doesn't mean you have to become emotionless. The faith journey of waiting doesn't mean you can't answer or ask God questions. The faith journey of waiting doesn't mean you never have doubts. It is in those doubts and questions and emotions that God steps in and says, I will love you with all of those. Which is a greater love? If God would say, oh, you go get that stuff together and then come back and I'll love you. You're going, no, no, even in your brokenness, even in your questions, even your lack of faith, I will love you just the way you are. And I share that because I think sometimes at church, we come and we try to stay all buttoned up and like we're the good Christian and inside we're dying. The weight is wearing us out. And shouldn't church be a safe place for the weight? Which leads me to the fifth one. The fifth observation that I have about when we wait for God in our prayers. Waiting is hard. The weight is hard. The couple 
that have tried for months and years to get pregnant, they just can't seem to conceive. It's hard. The person who has gone to treatment after treatment after treatment and asking God, God, can you heal me? The wait is hard. Many of you, the parents who pray for their grown child return back to God, the wait is hard. I've shared many times, y'all, the eight months that Keith is unemployed waiting for God to take me to the next church and church after church after church says, nope, we don't want you, no, we don't want you. And the wait was hard. But in that wait, God had me in the furnace. In the wait, God has you in the furnace. In the wait, you're okay to bring your emotions. And God is going, I'm just getting you ready for something bigger and more and deeper than what you've got right now. But no matter what the future holds, the wait is hard. And I began thinking this week as I was preparing this, and in my mind, I'd close my eyes, and I would see the different people, all of you sitting in your seat, and I'm going, I bet there's a lot of people waiting right now. And the wait is hard. And then I began thinking, we just came off the series from Porch to Patio that we're talking about, Acts chapter 2, that all the people brought their things together, and they became one in community. Shouldn't church be a safe place to wait with people? Shouldn't church be someplace that I don't have to put my tie on and make everything make everybody think things are good? Shouldn't church be a place? Shouldn't community be a place that I can breathe and just tell somebody I'm hurting right now in the waiting? I'm weary right now in the waiting. I'm not giving up on God. I'm just saying it's hard. And shouldn't church be a place that we can do that? Now, some of you in here are waiting and you're going, oh, you're, you're with me, Keith. And there's some, for whatever reason, you're not in a season of waiting, but the person next to you may need you because their waiting faith is not as great as your faith right now. Does that make sense? And so I, I want to do something. This is different than we normally do. If you're a guest, I promise, we don't usually do stuff like this, so just don't think we're too crazy. I want to be able to pray for those that are waiting. I want us to be able to stand next to somebody who's waiting and say, can I just wait with you? And so if you're here today and you're going, Keith, I'm waiting. It's hard. It's hot. I feel the furnace. I'm waiting. Would you have enough courage with me just for a second? Would you just raise your hand and just say, I'm, I'm in a waiting season, Keith. I hear everything you're saying. Look at that church. Look around. Keep your hands up for just a second. Thank you for your transparency and vulnerability. Scripture says this in the book of James, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. I don't think it's talking about I did this and this and the bad things I did. I think it's living transparently that we'll have everybody come around us. And so I'm going to ask you to trust me a little bit more because I, I really want to pray for you. If you raised your hand, you went, I'm in the waiting season, Keith. Would you just stand just for a second? I just, and I'm not going to put you on the spot. Would you just stand if you raise your hand that you're in the waiting? Thank you. I'm looking around the room and I know some of your stories. I just want to run and just come hug you right now. All right. If you're sitting, that means you're not in a waiting season. <laughs> but I guarantee everyone in here has been in a waiting season and will be in a waiting season, right? So sometimes Jesus gives us the body of Christ to be his hands and feet. 
So if somebody is standing around you, would everyone else stand and just move that person? Just hold their hand. Put your arm in their shoulder. I want us together. I'm going to pray for them, but I want you to be the hands and feet because the waiting is hard. Make sure we're next to somebody. You can move. This is, we don't normally do this in church. I said, don't, don't, don't think we're weird people here, okay? But sometimes we just need each other. Mm. Thank you. The church is not sitting politely in the seat listening to a good sermon. The church is people of God being the people of God. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray right now for those that are hurting and they're waiting. And we recognize, we, we say with them, it is hard. That doesn't make us run away from you, God. We're not forsaking you. We're just sharing and just confessing and just saying it's hard. But God, in the difficulty of waiting, in the heat of the furnace of waiting, I pray that you would give us deeper faith. Would you allow us to continue trusting in you, Jesus? And while we trust in you, we will continue to receive your hope, we want to receive your peace. We want to receive your grace. We want to receive your strength. Everything we need, God, we receive that from you while we wait. And I pray for my friends in this room that you would do in them and through them and with them, God, what only you can see. We trust you. And we wait on you as we pray. In your name we pray, amen.